0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Maggie Penman, sitting in for Martine Powers. You will still hear her later in the show, though. She taped a conversation about a question she had.
1: Is NBC ruining the Olympics?
2: Oh, you guys are coming in hot. Um...
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's coming up later. We're going to also start answering some of your questions about the Delta
3: surge. It is a surge that we haven't really seen the likes of since February.
0: But on this Wednesday, August 4th, one of the biggest stories is the fallout from an announcement yesterday afternoon from New York Attorney General Letitia James.
4: The investigation found that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed current and former New York state employees by engaging in unwelcome and non-consensual touching and making numerous offensive comments of a suggestive and sexual nature. Earlier this year, three women had come forward and publicly accused the New York governor of sexually harassing them. Alaihe Azadi covers media for The Post. He eventually referred the allegations to the New York Attorney General, and she launched an independent investigation back in March. And what we heard yesterday were the findings of months of investigating by an outside probe, essentially. They interviewed 179 individuals, including the governor, his inner circle, as well as the accusers. And they poured through thousands of documents as well. And... What other significant things did this report find? This report essentially found that not only did the governor sexually harass 11 people, including current and former state employees, but also that he created a hostile work environment for women, and that violates state and federal law. It's a really damning report. It substantiated several of the allegations and also sort of painted a portrait of an abusive and retaliatory office trying to kind of get back at some of those who stepped forward. Um, The report also sort of gives us more details into how the governor... And his inner circle were trying to scramble and figure out how to respond publicly to these allegations when they came out earlier this year. We're talking February and March, including text messages and emails so people really could see how they were communicating about this.
0: And on Tuesday, President Biden called for Governor Cuomo to resign. I have a question for you on coronavirus, but first I'd like to start with the news of the day, given back in March you said that if the investigation confirmed the allegations against Governor Cuomo, then he should resign. So will you now call on him to resign, given the investigators said the 11 women were credible? I stand by that statement. Are you now calling on him to resign? Yes. That feels pretty extraordinary for the president from his own party to call for that. I'm wondering, has the governor responded to any of that pressure? How has he responded to this report?
4: After the report was released, he put out a pre-taped video message. I wish nothing but good for you and for all survivors of sexual assault. And he also put out a document, essentially, that in part included photos of him and other people hugging and kissing people at public events, in part to demonstrate that, oh, you know, I'm just really affectionate and this is just how I am with everybody.
2: I do kiss people on the forehead. I do kiss people on the cheek.
1: I do kiss people on the hand. I do embrace people. I do
4: hug people. He defended himself, said that, you know, this is not who I am. I'm a champion of sexual assault survivors. He did mention a couple of the accusers by name, but he's been kind of defiant. Haiti has not indicated that he's going to step down, even though many members of his party have called for him to do so. Uh, He put that out before the president said that he should resign. And that's just a follow through on what President Biden had said earlier about what the attorney general in New York may find if she found this to be the case, that he should resign. That's something that the president said that he would call for. And so he did. So Chris Cuomo,
0: the CNN anchor who is also the governor's brother, his name is also trending today. What's going on there?
4: We already knew that Chris Cuomo had privately advised his brother and joined like a inner circle of people on how to respond to this back in February and March. Um, but now we know a little bit more about his involvement in this because the report details it. The report also includes interviews with Chris Cuomo. Now, CNN provided wall-to-wall coverage yesterday about the report and the fallout. Interestingly enough, it was Chris Cuomo's colleague who asked President Biden whether Andrew Cuomo should resign. But the one place where it wasn't a big story was on Chris Cuomo's show, his primetime 9 p.m. show. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome
2: to primetime. We're focused on COVID here, especially until we get the Delta variant under control. He
4: made no mention of it whatsoever, kind of going in line with what he has said previously about not being able to cover his brother. And it's no surprise that he didn't mention it at all, but he's actually involved in this huge major news story. And made no sort of mention of it on air. And it was rarely mentioned on CNN yesterday that one of their big anchors is part of the story.
0: But, Alahe, I remember early in the pandemic when Chris Cuomo was interviewing his brother, the governor, frequently on his show. And it was very jocular. And they, you know, made reference to the fact that they were brothers and had this... Back and forth on TV.
2: Hey Put it back up. The picture down. <laughs> Put it back up. There he is. <laughs> and here's why I'm doing it for these guys, because this is the guy who helped me shape who I am today. Look how I was looking at him so lovingly back then.
0: I know so, it looks like. how is CNN defending this, this double standard? standard?
4: So CNN has previously defended those appearances, saying, you know, there is a strict firewall. Chris Cuomo does not cover his brother because of the conflict of interest, but the pandemic was an extraordinary moment. People were dying. We're talking about the governor of the hardest hit state. And so we made an exception in that case to allow them to talk about the pandemic and the response um, because it was of great human interest. Um, But you know, they faced criticism for allowing that, especially in light of what's happened since. So what are you looking for
0: next, both from the governor but also from CNN?
4: I think everyone's watching to see how the governor is going to respond to all of these calls for him to resign. the State Assembly up there in New York, they are proceeding with impeachment proceedings. So we'll see what happens there. Regarding Chris Cuomo and CNN, I'm expecting to see CNN still really go hard on this story. But increasingly, people are wondering how is it that Chris Cuomo was not punished for advising the governor previously or how tenable his situation is at the network. Um, But it looks like the network is standing by him. So I'm not sure whether this will pass for him or, you know, whether he will have to address it in some form or another.
0: Alahi Azadi covers media for The Post. Sabi Robinson produced this story. Let's talk about Delta. New infections continue to skyrocket. Louisiana now has the highest number of COVID-19 cases in the country per capita. The state is back at a point where hospitals are having to cancel elective surgeries, and doctors and nurses are being called back from summer vacations. And when you come inside our walls, it is quite obvious to you that these are the darkest days of this pandemic. We are no longer giving adequate care to patients. That's Catherine O'Neill, the chief medical officer at Our Lady of the Lake Regional Medical Center, which is Louisiana's largest private hospital. Louisiana's governor has called for a statewide indoor mask mandate. As we've seen in other places, vaccinated people don't seem to be playing a big role in the spread happening there. But we're also hearing more about Delta+, Plus, a variant that experts think could be even more transmissible than the original one, Cases of Delta Plus have been found in countries including the U.S., the U.K., and India. It's unnerving. There's no getting around that. A lot of people are wondering how or whether to change plans. Former President Barack Obama was supposed to have a big birthday party this weekend. He turned 60 today. And now that's being pulled back to just family and close friends. And this theme of whether to change plans came up a lot when we asked for your questions earlier this week.
4: Hi, Post Reports. This is Josie Berghammond from Chicago. My fiance and I were supposed to get married in September 2020, which we, of course, canceled and moved to September 2021, hoping it would be safe. A month ago, we felt comfortable with our plan to have about 110 vaccinated, unmasked people in a closed space, but now we're not so sure. Should we move to a venue with some outdoor options or more airflow? Should we cancel altogether? Are we probably fine if we're all vaccinated and there's no need to change course? Would love any guidance you can offer.
0: So let's get into some answers. We asked science reporter Ben Guarino to help us puzzle through this.
3: So I'm really reluctant to give yes or no safety answers. I know that's not what a lot of people want to hear. But I would instead encourage people to think about the risks and benefit. And I mean, gathering with friends and family to celebrate something as important as a wedding like that, that is a benefit. And that, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be discounted out of hand. Um, But I will say, first of all, predicting where the pandemic is going to be in the fall is really tough to do. When I talked to disease trackers last week about the course of this summer surge, they were very reluctant to project anything months out in advance. We just, we don't know how people will be behaving. We don't know whether there will be a new variant that emerges. We don't know what the community transmission is going to be like. So with those features in mind, what you can assess for something like a wedding, you know, you can think about, well, is everyone for sure vaccinated Will people wear masks? Will there be anyone there who is at risk for severe disease? Will there be, you know, children who may not be vaccinated? Will there be servers? Will people be wearing masks? So you kind of have to figure out, especially if you're in charge of an event like a wedding, what is your comfort level? Are you comfortable with the risk, however small? And, you know, we can make risks smaller by taking these precautions but the reality is the virus is spreading um, at least right now uh, and in all likelihood will be in the fall but who knows it, at what level and just kind of pay attention to what that spread is like in the community that your your guests will be traveling to and and where you're holding this event.
0: maybe not what people want to hear but that makes sense. Um, let's hear another question.
1: This is Sonia Gabrielson from
0: Chicago. I'm curious
1: to know how the CDC knows that the Delta variant is surging. I personally have been tested for COVID a number of times over the last year, including as recently as a week ago. And there doesn't seem to have been any transition from testing for regular COVID to suddenly testing for a Delta variant. So I'm curious to know where the data that shows that the Delta variant is surging is coming from.
3: So this question gets to the heart of something called genomic surveillance, and that's a technical sounding term for basically surveying the coronavirus. So you can think of it a little bit how someone might take a poll or a survey of Americans to get their political preference, but instead of using a phone, what scientists will do is they'll sequence the genome of the coronavirus, and it doesn't have to be everyone, so You personally may not have had your virus sequenced, but what is happening is that samples are sent to a lab and scientists can look through the genes of the coronavirus and there are unique markers that make delta, delta. And so by doing that enough, taking enough samples, scientists have a very good idea which variant is dominant. And and right now that's Delta. And you can combine that with epidemiological modeling to fill in some of those gaps, especially because genomic surveillance isn't as great as it could be. Uh, the United States has lagged throughout the pandemic behind places like the United Kingdom, where they have a more robust genetic surveillance program. But we're getting better. And we know from those samples that Delta is the one that's spreading now. It's what scientists might call the most fit form of the coronavirus out there.
0: Interesting. So we have another question from a listener in Maine.
2: This is David Crane in York, Maine. I'm wondering whether the 70% of the country that is now vaccinated, when combined with the millions of Americans who are gaining immunity through their exposure to an infection from the Delta variant, may not be reaching herd immunity.
4: Wouldn't that be awesome?
0: So I think David is referring to the 70% of eligible Americans who have now gotten at least one shot, which was announced this week by the White House So, I'm really curious to hear what you think about that, Ben. Like, are we getting closer to herd immunity, or is this still really far away?
3: Yeah, I oh this this elusive herd immunity goal. I mean, it's so tough to say. I mean, the the first short answer is yes. Each person who develops an immune response to the coronavirus makes the coronavirus harder to spread. So the more people who get vaccinated and unfortunately the more people who get infected and produce all kinds of immune fighters against future infection, that's like an immune wall that we're starting to build what exact percentage there is i've asked people and the consensus among experts is there's not a hard and fast percentage it's not like you flip a switch and then all of a sudden the coronavirus doesn't circulate anymore but with our wall that is growing it gets harder and harder for it to do i will say there is some question about how long these various immune responses last. There's this concept that readers may have heard of um, described as antibodies waning, uh, and that's because your immune system just it costs resources and energy to keep making antibodies, and so your immune system doesn't want to do that. So over time, antibodies will wane. Uh, that said, you have other types of immune fighters that maybe haven't been in the headlines quite as much. They're a little bit harder to study, uh, but they're things called T cells which can recognize and and kill infected cells, and memory B cells, uh, which are the ones that help produce new antibodies, and those are the ones that will last and in the small but growing body of evidence that that I've seen, uh, those do persist. So I think that is a optimistic thing for us to, to keep in mind as more people get vaccinated.
4: Hmm.
0: Another big concern for a lot of people, including some of our listeners, was whether vaccinated people can catch and pass on the Delta variant, even if they have no symptoms. What can you tell us about that?
3: There is some emerging evidence that the Delta variant may be more likely to be spread through vaccinated people, but it's hard to say for certain. So what we know about the ways that the virus escapes the immune system in the lab, it doesn't seem that the Delta variant has any sort of souped up ability to evade immune responses. On the other hand, because it's more transmissible in general, we know that Delta is the most common variant being spread around the United States. The people who get breakthrough infections, whether or not Delta is more likely to cause one, are more likely to get Delta. If you can kind of think of the odds of a vaccinated person getting a breakthrough infection may still be pretty low, but if they're going to get one right now, it's probably going to be Delta because there's just so much Delta in the U.S. that's being spread.
0: And are those vaccinated people who are catching the Delta variant getting any sicker, or is the vaccine still protecting people against the most serious illness?
3: The vaccines are very good at preventing severe illness and death, and that seems pretty clear There does not necessarily seem to be a whole ton of evidence about Delta, even though it feels like we've been hearing about Delta for a long time. It's still, you know, it's one of the newer variants to be spreading through the United States. Scientists are still learning about it and hospitalizations lag behind cases. So it's slower for this to appear. What is clear is that the folks who are getting sick right now tend to be younger and healthier than those in the past. So the vaccination rates are really high and really good among the older and vulnerable population who are more likely to get the most severe effects of COVID. I know that was a lot of words to say. We don't really know for sure. I think the jury <laughs> is still out there. It's 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 not clear that it causes more severe disease. Um, but if you know, it's another reason why if you're in an area with high community transmission, really you know, think about wearing a mask when you go grocery shopping or you're in a crowded building. You don't want COVID, even even a mild case.
0: So should vaccinated people be getting tested if they have a cold-like symptom or feel like they might have been exposed?
3: I think that's a good idea. I mean, I know where I happen to live in New York City, they still offer free walk-in tests. So if I have like the sniffles or something, I'm fully vaccinated, but I might go get tested just to make sure that I don't have the virus. I think the peace of mind is worth it. I know that the CDC recently updated its recommendations. It, they used to say that if you're vaccinated and you're around someone who knows that they have COVID, you didn't need to get tested if you didn't show symptoms. Now they're saying whether or not you show symptoms and you have there's a known exposure, get tested. I think that's a good idea.
0: Mm. Okay. And our last listener question comes from Alan Ball.
4: The Provincetown Cluster shows us that COVID can live and be spread by people who are vaccinated. If that's the case, and the COVID Delta variant can remain in a vaccinated populace, does that mean we're ever going to be free of it? Will it ever go away? Yeah,
3: I, I know. I, I I totally get that sentiment. I will say that breakthrough infections, although no one wants to see them, they're not surprising. We know that the vaccines protect against severe illness and death really well. That's what they were designed to do. What they don't do as well is nip an infection right in the bud. I don't know the exact statistics of the province town outbreak off the top of my head, but I don't think very many people got that sick at all. And and that's great. That That's really important for people to keep in mind. Unfortunately, the coronavirus looks as though it's going to be another type of infection that humans get. There's a phrase that, that scientists use to describe this kind of virus. It, they call it endemic. So it might be something like the flu where instead of the flu season in the future, we have flu and COVID season, unfortunately. The silver lining there is we have robust vaccines. We have a really incredible technology, this mRNA tool that we didn't have before. um, And mRNA vaccines... Can be rejiggered to help protect against future emerging variants. So we might have to live alongside COVID in the future, but it's going to not be so dominant the way it is now. It's going to be, it's going to be something, in all likelihood, like the flu, according to the the experts that that I've talked to.
0: I guess that's some sort of comfort
3: (laughs) it's not the the vanquishing of a disease that we all hoped for but i struggle to see it getting as bad as it was in the in the winter and last year where we we had to do lockdowns again and things like that so
0: well thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions ben
3: thank you maggie
0: Ben Guarino is a health and science reporter for The Post. Emma Talkoff produced this segment. We got a lot of questions from you about schools and kids, and we're going to try and answer some of those next week with an education reporter. If you have a question about how to keep kids safe as they head back to school this fall, send us a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. We'll be right back. Let's get back now to that question Martine Powers had for Ben Strauss. He covers sports and media for The Post. And Martine has had some trouble watching the Olympics. So she wanted to know, is NBC ruining the Olympics?
2: Oh, you guys are coming in hot. Um, Is NBC ruining the Olympics? That's the question
1: we all want to know.
2: <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think it's a it's a fairly difficult thing. They are broadcasting Olympics that are happening half a day ahead of time. They are also trying to build a streaming service which is the future of their business which is Peacock while also maintaining the cash flows of what, you know, remains their biggest moneymaker, which is linear television. And so it's a fairly tricky position. That doesn't mean consumers are happy, and I think every, every two years, really, we get you know a drumbeat of what is NBC doing wrong? You know, How do I find these sports? So it might not be the most consumer-friendly operation, but I think the main criticism we've heard is, where do I find the sports that I want to watch, and why can I not watch them live? We've seen this a couple of times. We've seen this with the men's basketball team. We've also seen this with the track events, the the 100 meter men's final. These are live on Peacock versus live on linear TV. And it's a a fairly tricky process to figure out where you can watch the stuff that you want to watch. And we've seen consumers and fans of the Olympics take to social media and, you know, the hashtag nopeacock and complain about NBC's strategy here and complain about not being able to find the stuff that they want to watch.
1: So then what do we know about how many people are actually watching or at least attempting to watch the Olympics right now?
2: Yeah, it's it's a lot fewer people than normal. So the opening ceremony in Tokyo drew 16.7 million viewers uh and that accounts for both the live morning broadcast and the replay in primetime, and that's the smallest audience for an opening ceremony in over 30 years. That's down from 26.5 million who watched the event in Rio in 2016, and down from 40 million people who watched the London ceremony, and that's 2012. So we're seeing significantly lower numbers than the Olympics is is traditionally drawing. Now, before we take that just as an apples-to-apples comparison, we should note, First, the time difference. London and Rio didn't have the same issues of, of being a full half day mm-hmm. behind the way we are with Tokyo. And the other one is just the universe of TV watching is smaller. So between 2016 and 2021, where we are now, we, we've we lost 11 million homes that have a cable subscription or a satellite subscription. So there are just fewer people watching television The same way that they did in in 2016. And that's going to have a big impact on the numbers. You know, even in a perfect world where the Olympics are incredible and there's fans and Simone Biles is winning gold medals, the number is going to be almost certainly down anyway, just because you're looking at a smaller universe of people.
1: But do you think that there Is a larger reason for those numbers being down that goes beyond just the number of people who are subscribing to cable or the time difference that there is less of an excitement, at least in an American audience, about watching Olympics live?
2: I think these Olympics have struggled. to to generate the excitement we've had sometimes in usual Olympics, right? In previous Olympics, we've had Usain Bolt and we've had Michael Phelps. In this Olympics, the biggest star was Simone Biles. And instead of talking about gold medals, instead of talking about, you know, her achievements, we're talking about mental health and what is wrong with the Olympics. And I think that is absolutely not the audience driver Mm. that winning gold medals is. And... That's tricky for NBC. NBC is also in a tricky spot because we're talking about mental health, but we're also not necessarily talking about the Olympic Committee's role in Simone Biles' mental health and USA Gymnastics' role in Simone Biles' mental health, right? There's this huge sex abuse scandal that's sort of hanging over what's going on with Simone Biles. Another thing I would mention is we went through this with sports TV ratings during the pandemic for every other sport where everything was down from the NBA Finals to the Super Bowl. When there's no fans in the stands, the television presentation just lacks the sort of life and the verve and enthusiasm that I think viewers want from the Olympics, especially the gymnastics. All of the shots of the gymnasts, you've got these empty bleachers in the background, this empty arena, you know, there's very little energy to the broadcast.
1: I also thought it was interesting you mentioned the time difference, the 13-hour time difference, at least, between the East Coast of the U.S. and Tokyo. And I think that brings up some pretty existential questions about, like, are the Olympics a news story that one should be able to watch live or are they kind of like a primetime television event? And I feel like we've seen some situations where NBC is choosing to delay broadcasting or sharing video of critical moments in the Olympics so that they can hold them for prime time, but not letting us experience the thing that just happened in Tokyo that everyone wants to know about.
2: I think that's a really interesting question. And there's no better example of this than when Simone Biles pulls, out of the team competition in gymnastics. So immediately afterwards on the Today show, you get a whole segment about Simone Biles pulling out of the gymnastics and one of the hosts is live in the venue reporting on this news and NBC has video of it and they just don't show it to you. They show you old footage of Simone Biles competing, I think, on another NBC network. They showed you um, still photographs of the event happening. And it's a really good question. Like, is this holding back news or is this saving entertainment for primetime? Because in that situation,
1: they were basically they didn't want to show the vault that Simone Biles had to downgrade where she, you know, walks off the mat visibly upset because they were holding on to it for for primetime later that day. Correct.
2: Exactly. They didn't show you the video of the vault and they were talking about the vault on, right, on numerous segments across NBC. They're, they're talking about this vault. They have footage of the vault, and they're not showing it to you. There's footage of Simone Biles talking to her teammates, right, in the moment and saying, I'm not going to compete, and they're not showing you that either. But in one way where this is different than previous Olympics, NBC is talking about it as news. And, and even at the top of the broadcast that night, where they showed the Simone Biles vault, Mike Tirico welcomes everybody and says, you know, we know that you know about Simone Biles and we're going to show it to you. And so there was sort of this very strange dance of acknowledging that you know it and here now we're going to show it to you. So incredibly confusing. And again, if you are a consumer, a viewer, and you want to see that vault, pretty frustrating.
1: And why is that? Like, what are the incentives that go into making that decision of we need to hold on to some of this footage for the time when we think most people
2: will be watching? You just said it. That is the incentive. We want primetime viewers. We've sold advertising and we've promised those advertisers a certain number of viewers and we need to deliver those viewers in primetime. Wow. And so viewership has been down and NBC has been in negotiations with advertisers to you know, get them more spots, to get them more viewers to make up for what has been a smaller audience than expected. And their first priority is not serving the consumer serving the viewer. That is something that they would like to do, but it is not the top priority.
1: So the Olympics are supposed to be this moment where the world comes together, where we're all in awe of these athletes, that there is a sense of unity and universal excitement. And it seems like this year is much more complicated for that. So I wonder if NBC is successful at creating a broadcast that really makes the games feel like that inspiring global moment.
2: This Olympics is different, right? You have so much opposition to it in Japan. Number 1, you have the coronavirus, you have no fans. And so the opening ceremony was a really, you know, interesting might be too generous, but sort of a really disparate experience where you you had these empty stands, you had NBC talking about the optimism of the moment when the the flame was lit and you had journalists at the same time who were live tweeting the protests outside. What do we want? where you could hear the people chanting because there were no fans in the stands. And so I think the relationship between the uh, broadcasting company and what these games have become becomes a little more acute. You can't just sell the Olympics as this sort of magnanimous kumbaya moment because they just aren't. And even though we've had questions about You know, the Olympics and the IOC and doping and bribery and, you know, how certain communities have been treated by host countries to build venues. We've had these questions for a long time. Now, these Olympics, you're really not able to brush them aside. Okay, let's watch the sports now. And I think that in previous Olympics, you know, broadcasters have been able to do that. And viewers have, in some cases, been willing to go along with that. And that's just not the case in these Olympics.
0: Ben Strauss covers sports and media for The Post. Emma Talkoff produced this story. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Swernofsky and Emma Talkoff. And you can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And you can join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports or email us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Maggie Penman. Martin Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.